goodbyes. Just talking to Pastor Kyle in my office this morning, I looked it up, I began this study at the end of 2021, and so it's appropriate that all good things must come to an end at some point. We're past the doctrinal sections, we're really into an epilogue is where we start this morning in Romans chapter 15 verses 14 through 21. Just giving you time to find your place in scriptures. And if you're able, out of respect for the word of God and for its reading, would you stand, please? The Apostle Paul, under divine inspiration, writes, And concerning you, that is to the church at Rome, my brethren, I myself am also convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. But I've written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again, because of the grace that was given me from God, to be a minister of Christ, Jesus, to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, and in the power of signs and wonders, and the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, that I might not build upon another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Let's pray. Father, this morning, oh, speak to us, Lord. Show us Christ, Lord, in his glory. Father, we don't want to boast man or the works of man. For your presence, no flesh But God, you help us this morning to seek pages, pages of Holy Scripture, the glory that belongs to Christ. Change us, Father. In worship, Lord, meet with us this morning by your spirit for the edification of your people and for the evangelism of the lost. And we would ask this for Christ's sake. And in his name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the Apostle Paul is the author of the book of Romans. But what drove this man? I mean, what would you think motivated Paul to action? I mean, anyone that would look at his life, it was obvious to all, here's a man on a mission. He was consumed. Paul was consumed knowing Christ, but he is also consumed with making Christ known. So if we're going to answer the questions, what motivated him, we first must understand who he used to be and what happened to him in his life. Well, most of you know the Apostle Paul was formerly known as Saul of Tarsus. Now, Saul was the fair-haired boy of Judaism. And what I mean by that is he was the up-and-coming star, if you will, the future leader of the Jewish nation, eminently trained, just a world-class education in the law, radically committed. His zeal knew no bounds, radically committed to the Jewish faith. So much so that he thought the message of Christ and Christ's gospel both were heresy. He saw them as satanic perversions of truth. So he hated anything that detracted 
from God's glory found in the law of Moses. Thus he hated Christianity. He would do anything within his power to eradicate what he deemed filth from the earth. He was a man to ensure that this poison not spread any further. Now we first hear Saul in the book of Acts. And it's immediately following the martyrdom of a man named Stephen. It's found in Acts 7. Stephen had been preaching to the Jewish leaders the gospel, the good news about Christ, when suddenly they did not like what they were hearing and they became enraged by what he was preaching. So they decided to drag him outside the city and there they would stone him to death. We see in chapter 7, verse 58, and they cast him out of Stephen out of the city and they stoned him. But notice here's the first mention of Saul. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. Then we read in chapter 8. Now Saul was consenting to his death. Saul thought what they did to Stephen was perfectly acceptable and right before God. He consented to it. And at that time, a great persecution, and notice the word great, a mega persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. So much so that the disciples were all scattered through Judah and Samaria. The only people left behind in Jerusalem were the apostles. So we keep going. You had this young zealot, Saul. He encouraged and wholeheartedly agreed that this preacher, this man named Stephen, should be killed for what he was preaching. No pity, no mercy at all shown by Saul. Verse 3. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church. And I, at the end, we need to stop and think about what's saying. He literally, he was destroying the church, entering every house, dragging off men and women, and committing them to prison. I mean, Saul was willing, more than willing, to persecute men, women, presumably young and old, anyone who was identifying with the Lord Jesus. It did not matter to him. They needed to be rid. He needed to get rid of them, if you will. Then in Acts chapter 9, then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, he went to the high priest. He asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus. Why Damascus? Because remember, the, the disciples were scattered. They'd gone 200 miles to Damascus. So that they found any who were of the way, that's the Christian faith, whether men or women, and he's bringing up murder against them, he might bring them bound as a prisoner back to Jerusalem. Saul was almost maniacal in his passion here. He was willing to travel some 200 miles to Damascus. No cars, no engines, by foot or by camel. For what purpose? He was going to go there and drag Christians back to Jerusalem to try them, imprison them, and perhaps kill them. As I said, he was very enraged. And in verse 3, we read these words. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, that's his destination, suddenly a light shone around him from heaven. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he, and I think this is probably the most surprising element in all the scripture, Saul says, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads. 
So he trembling, and notice that next word, I love this, he's astonished. I believe that's probably the biggest understatement. I mean, Paul, or Saul, is trying to kill Christians, and he's astonished. He is genuinely surprised. All this Christian faith, it's real. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? The Lord said to him, arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So Saul was immediately stopped in his tracks by a blinding light, literally a blinding light. The glory of God in Christ shone upon Paul on this fateful road. And it was there that the Lord Jesus revealed himself to Saul and left him blind. Now God then tells Ananias, here's a man there in Damascus. He's a disciple of Christ. He said, hey, I want you to go to a man named Saul and help him to regain his sight. And Ananias, I'm sure he's like, is this of the Lord? Look at the text. Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles. Now that's going to be an important part. Kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went his way, entered the house, laying his hands on him. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you came, has sent me that you may receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. He regained his sight at once, and he arose and he was baptized. So Saul meets the risen Christ on this Damascus road. His life is forever changed. You only see two verses later, one verse later. Then Saul, in that verse 19, spent some days with the disciples at Damascus. Immediately, he preached the Christ in the synagogues. What did he preach about the Christ? That he's the son of God. He went to Damascus to get rid of this filth. And there in Damascus, the very synagogues, he's going to bind these Christians. He's preaching most powerfully the very gospel that he once hated. Saul, the great persecutor, the enemy of Christ, the enemy of this church, had been gloriously converted to Christ, and he would spend the rest of his life until a sword would separate his head from his body, preaching and defending Christ and the gospel that he once hated so very much. Paul knew something. Christ had risen. And because Christ had risen, the gospel was real. And since the gospel was real, it is worth giving your life for. And I think in a very ironic twist here, God would use this Jewish zealot, Saul, who was so passionate about the law of Moses, he would be the human means to reach the people he once despised, those pagan, unclean Gentiles. God would call Saul to preach Christ whom he hated to the Gentiles whom he once hated. Isn't that grace? I mean, that's so surprising, such irony here. And then we know Saul, now the apostle Paul, he would be an apostle, a sent one, apostolos. To whom? To the Gentile nations. You read about that in Romans 11. For I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. You may be saying, well, so what? What's this have to do with Romans 15? Everything. It comes to bear upon our text because the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a Roman church. The Roman church is by and large Gentile. But Paul was not the founder of the church. 
nor had he even visited it. The Roman Christians were unknown to Paul by face. They did never met. So you might say, well, then how did he know what was going on in the church? Because he seems to have insider information. Well, in chapter 16, verse 3, we read this. He had some good friends there. You all have heard about them in the book of Acts, Priscilla and Aquila, a husband and wife team. Notice, he says, greet them. They're at Rome, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. This, no doubt, is where some of that information is getting back to Paul. But as I said, Paul was not the founder. He wasn't even an elder in the church. No office holder there. And yet he decided to write a letter boldly. Now, all this was under God's superintendent. And he would expound the gospel, but he would also help them settle some issues that had arisen in their body. Why would he do this? Is he not just meddling, interfering? No, because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. Look at verses 14 to 16 again. I just read them to you. He says, concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering as a priest. And I'll stop there. So Paul, this is the epilogue. He begins to close the letter, and he's being very diplomatic. I think he's being pastorally sensitive here. I mean, he's been very bold in his letter, but he knows that he has written very boldly, but he also knew that the church was mature, it was healthy, it was not in grave danger. This is not like Corinth, if you will. He says, I'm convinced about you all. I know you're a mature church. He says, I know that you're full of goodness. They're virtuous. Their faith had made a difference in their lives. He said, I know you're filled with knowledge. This is not like he was writing to them and they had never heard the gospel. They knew the gospel. Now, not as fully as Paul expounded it. But he also said, you're also capable to admonish one another. This word admonish one another, it's interesting. It's a Greek word, nutheteo. There's a whole branch of Christian counseling called nuthetic counseling. And it's just where you take the gospel and then you apply it to different life situations. And he says, I know that you're able to nutheteo one another. You're able to counsel and apply the gospel to your different situations. Well, then Paul, what'd you write to him? Verse 15, I want to remind you again of something. There was a grace that was given to me to be a minister to you all. Rome was the capital city of the empire. Rome was the heart of the Gentile world. So the Roman church would be extraordinarily important and influential. But it was not Jewish largely Gentile. Who's the apostle to the Gentiles? Paul. So they fell under his purview, if you will. And as we look at our text this morning, Paul sees himself. He sees himself in different roles. He's a prophet declaring the word of God. He even uses priestly language. He sees himself as a priest of the Gentiles. And we'll see that he concludes as a pioneer in this missionary work. Now, how is he a prophet? Well, if you look at his life, he's working tirelessly, I mean, to the point of exhaustion, and he's doing this to communicate God's message to God's people. What was the role of the prophet of the Old Covenant? Communicate God's message to God's people. The prophets were a mouthpiece for God. They, he, when God wanted to say something, he would give it to the prophets, and the prophets would declare it, and Paul continued in this prophetic vein. You see that in chapter 1, when Paul said, notice, for God, whom I serve in my spirit, how, Paul? 
in preaching of the gospel of the Son. What is preaching? Preaching is a proclamation. It's a heralding. How did Paul serve God? By preaching, proclaiming this good news of Christ. So Paul is a prophet because preaching is prophetic work. What do we proclaim? What God has done for his people in Christ. And this is the message that God most desired to be communicated. That God, by his Son, has redeemed sinners through the bloody death, burial, and resurrection of his Son. And this was central. Paul never got away from this message at all. I and mean, if you look at, say, what was the one dominant characteristic of Paul's ministry? He said to the Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. There it is. That's the message. So as a, as a prophet, you have the Apostle Paul, and he goes everywhere preaching Christ, preaching the gospel to the nations. But in our text today, he doesn't see himself primarily as a prophet, a preacher, if you will, but as a priest. Now, that's interesting because we don't use the word priest too often in evangelical Protestantism. But he was a priest not in a strict, literal sense. You don't find Paul offering animal sacrifices. You don't find Paul coming from a priestly tribe of Levi. But rather, Paul metaphorically, he sees himself in this light. Notice what he's doing here. Verse 16, the latter part of it. Ministering as a priest the gospel of God, that my offering of the Gentiles might become acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I mean, all this language in the King James, New King James, you're going to see the word minister, but it's not the word diakonos or something like that. It's liturgical words. It's priestly service here. Our Lord Jesus was the great high priest who offered himself as the final sin-removing, atoning sacrifice for sins. That's not Paul. Paul's ministry was to give an offering. But what was his offering? The Gentile nations, the Gentile people. He's, he sees himself, I'm going to offer to God the Gentiles as a sacrifice, and the gospel would be the means to make the sacrifice acceptable. This really is part of Isaiah's prophecy. All this is fulfilled in the church. Isaiah chapter 60, or 66, verse 18. The time is coming to gather all nations, all tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. And they will declare my glory where? Among the nations. Paul, by preaching Christ, is part of this fulfillment to redeem the nations. Now, Paul was offering the Gentiles, but he was unable to make them holy. He could not clean them up, if you will. The Spirit of God must sanctify them or set them apart for holiness. The Spirit of God must be the one who would give them life, change them from unclean sinners to a holy offering fit for holy service in God's holy kingdom. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I believe at this point there are probably some Jewish Christians who, upon hearing of the Gentiles' conversion, they still saw them as unclean. Why? They weren't circumcised. So what Paul's reply would have been to these people is like, they have been sanctified by the Holy Spirit. I mean, God's using Paul, and he's using Paul greatly. And Paul admits to being proud of what the Lord had done, but it was not a self-oriented pride. Look at verse 17. 
He says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. This is not arrogance or hubris. This is gratitude. Paul is thankful. He grounds his boasting in Christ and what God has done through him. What's he saying? He said, this ministry to the Gentiles, it's not my own doing. All this is a result of God's grace. Look at verses 18 and 19. For I will not presume to speak of anything except what God has accomplished, Christ has accomplished through me, resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed. We'll stop there for a moment. So you find here Paul is giving credit where credit is due. Where is he bragging? What Christ has accomplished through me. Through me. This is the dynamic, friends, you're going to see over and over in the scriptures. God indeed uses human instruments, but the result, the work, is always him. Always. God is working. God is saving. God is sanctifying. And Paul was simply the human instrument or tool through which God would work. In other words, you look at Paul's ministry, the fruit of it, the success of it, if you will, in the Gentile world, was not because Paul was so eloquent. In fact, he denies that. Not because Paul was so wise or charismatic. He did not have these showy gifts. But rather, God was at work through this man, and God would accomplish his plan. So whatever God's blessing, wherever God's blessing, wherever God's fruitfulness may be found, you can be sure of something. The result is not the result of any man. Wherever God's blessing, wherever ministerial success is found, if it's true success in the eyes of God, it's not because man, it's because God. And God, and Paul would be the first to say amen. But what was the result? And notice the text. He said the obedience of the Gentiles. He didn't say the faith of the Gentiles. The obedience. What is the obedience of the Gentiles? It's faith in Christ and faithfulness to Christ. They were obedient to the gospel. Paul mentioned this when he opened up the letter back in chapter 1, verse 5. and We we talked about this three years ago. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake. Now there's something we need to clear up. Faith and obedience are not the same. They're not. They're not synonyms. You can't just substitute one for the other. But wherever one finds true faith, inevitably, obedience will be present as well. Amen. And that's what the Reformers said. See, the, the Catholic Church was very upset the Reformers are saying, you are saying that man no longer has to be obedient. And they're like, no, hear us clearly. The sinner is saved through faith alone, but never by a faith that is alone. Obedience of faith was always Paul's aim. Why? Because he's not concerned with simply making converts. He's not keeping tally of how many people he baptized. I love that because you remember when he's talking to Corinth, he said, I don't know that I baptized any of you all. And then he's like, oh, maybe Crispus and yeah, there's Gaius. But other than that, I don't think I baptized any of you all. He wasn't concerned with keeping tally of how many baptisms or how many converts. But his passion, as well as ours should be, was to make disciples. Well, we use that term, discipleship, disciple, follower. But what does it mean? How do you know if you're a disciple of Christ? 
Well, we don't have to guess. The Bible gives us very clear instruction there. In Matthew 28, that known as the Great Commission, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Okay, that's the command. How? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of this age. So what's the call? Go make disciples. Where? All nations, all ethnos, all ethnic groups. Well, how do you do that? Well, he said you start by baptizing them in the name of the triune God. They have to have the, the sign of the covenant. Well, what's the result then? Obedience. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. A convert is not a disciple until he has learned to obey Christ. And I would suggest to you, one is not saved. Now, it doesn't, you can be saved in grace and faith, but if your faith never makes a difference in your life, that's not saving faith. It's a dead faith. It produces no works. What he was after was obedience. Not because obedience saved. This is not merit before God at all. So how did, God, or how did Paul bring the Gentiles to obedience? He says, well, there's two means. I preached to them and I showed them by word and deed. By word, he's preaching powerfully. Not that he was some great orator. That's not what it means. But the message was powerful. Christ crucified, Christ risen, Christ returning. He also was an apostle. That meant his words came with the weight and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. When the apostles spoke, that came with a stamp, the imprimatur of God himself. See, so Paul, this man, preaching this wonderful gospel with authority from God because he had been sent by God. But imagine you're there in Damascus or Illyricum, and you're hearing this strange man come into your town. You don't know him from Adam. And he begins telling you about a crucified Jewish carpenter who's risen again, and by the way, he's a son of God. You should expect, like, are you serious? How do I know that? Look at verse 18. By word and deed, and here's verse 19. In the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit. As an apostle, Paul was given the authority to do miracles, signs and wonders here. What was the purpose? To wow, to dazzle the crowds? No to validate, to authenticate that what he was preaching was true. 2 Corinthians 2.12 says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance. How? Signs, wonders, miracles. The apostles were granted that. So Paul is showing true apostolic authority that the gospel message, this message about Christ, it was vindicated, it was authenticated, it was substantiated by what he was able to do. The miracles served as signs. Signs of what? the inbreaking of God's kingdom. The kingdom of God had arrived, and it was being confirmed by the mighty signs and wonders that these men, these apostles, were able to perform. But how did they do it? Only, only, exclusively by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was on working. They were human instruments, and Paul sees himself as a priest offering the Gentiles as a sacrifice holy to God but that's not all. And this is where we begin to close here. He also saw himself as a true pioneer. Look at the last three verses, 19 to 21. So that from Jerusalem and round about as far as Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. 
And thus I aspired to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named. I don't want to build up another man's foundation. And he quotes again the prophet here. They who had no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. Paul had preached Christ from Jerusalem. That's the birthplace of Christianity. To Illyricum. Illyricum is a thousand miles away by sea, two thousand by land. I mean, Paul went everywhere. His desire was to preach in the hard places. He's like, Paul, where do you want to preach? He said, give me the people that are really stiff-necked and hard and have never heard. That's where I want to go. He's longing, he's desiring to preach where Christ had not been named and no church had been established. Why? Because he's a pioneer in the gospel work. He wanted to forge a trail for others. And I think this is a true missionary spirit. This is the spirit of true evangelism, if you will. Paul saw himself as the one who laid the foundation. And others would come behind him, qualified men, and they would build upon his work. He was a, he was a master builder, laying the foundation, Christ the cornerstone, and others would come and build there. A trailblazer, really in the truest sense. But here's the question, why? Why would a man desire hardship? He wanted to go to hard places. He wanted to get the hard ground because he had been gripped by the glory of God found in the gospel. Amen. Acts 9. You remember on his, on his way to Damascus, what was he going to do? He was going to imprison Christians and suddenly he stopped in his tracks. The gospel had got a hold of him. It had gripped him and it gave him a passion that others will know this liberating and life-giving message of Christ. So you're saying, what was his motivation? Why was he who he was? Because he had been apprehended by Christ. He had this passion. I want to go to the hard places, and I'll go there willingly, because I want to tell everyone, but I want to tell the people who have never heard, who have no access, who have no light, send me there. Why? Because I know what it's like to not know him. And I know what it's like to know him. And I want everyone to know this beautiful message. Why, do you, why does this church spend thousands upon tens of thousands of dollars every year in supporting missionaries? For one reason. That those who have not seen and those who have not heard, or heard might see and hear. We want the world to know Christ but let me make this even more personal to us this morning. Why do you do what you do? Why do you serve God if you serve God? Certainly, and I pray it's not to earn merit. You're not trying to earn God's smile or his approval. You're not trying to find favor. Favor, acceptance is given to us in Christ. My prayer, and I sincerely mean this, is that you too have been gripped by God's glory in Christ. Amen. You can't get over it. You can't believe that you're a part of this kingdom. You have a passion now. Why? You know the risen Christ. There's fellowship with God. So I have a passion, a consuming, a burning desire to live for his kingdom and not man's. I know him. And I want to know him more. But what does it mean to live for God's glory? What does it mean to live for God? I mean, it's to live for his glory. In all things, Paul said, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, to his glory. 
Okay, well, what glorifies God? A life of love. That's sacrificial, putting others before you. A life of obedience, as our text, or 1 John 2 said, if we know him, we ought to keep his commandments. And a life of service. Because he picked up the trowel and picked, or picked up this uh, towel and girded himself and washed the disciples' feet. What do you and I do? We pick up the towel, we gird ourselves, and we wash other people's feet. Or Jesus would say this, you want to know what it means to serve God? It's to love God with what? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with everything you have. But it doesn't stop there. It's to love your neighbor as yourself. It's to love your fellow Christian brother. It's to love your fellow Christian sister. This glorifies God. This community is a community of love. It's also, Jesus said, hey, you want to be my disciple? Hey, think carefully about that. You want to be my disciple? Because it means be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Where do we, where do we follow you, Lord? Well, when he picked up his cross, it took him to a hill outside of Calvary, or outside of Jerusalem. It's to follow him wherever he may lead, no matter how hard the darkness comes or how, no matter how difficult the road grows, we follow him. Paul did not live some candy and roses life. But you ask him today, if we could, was it worth it? Is it worth it? If you know him, the answer is, I mean, you're just being, you're like, yes, you just want to break. Yes, it's worth it. Why? Because he is Lord. Because of what he has done for me. To the saints this morning, dear saint, you were dead in your sin. What did God do for you? Amen. He gave you life. Amen. He raised you from the dead. He joined you to his son. And he gave you his spirit. In other words, he gave you himself. And then he went for, he adopted you. You were a spiritual orphan. And he adopted you into his eternal family, giving you the same access as his son Jesus has. And then he's given you an inheritance. You are an heir of God. Now listen, if I, I think about this all the time. If you were an heir of some multi-billionaire, you might be pretty excited about that. But that pales in comparison to being an heir of God. You're going to inherit what Jesus inherits. You are a co-heir with Christ. And that's what Paul, Paul wrote this in this book. That's why at the end of it, he's like, he's gripped. He's like, don't send me over to the corner where our church is. Give me, give me Damascus. Give me Illyricum. Give me Nepal. Give me North Korea. Why? That's where I want to go. They've not heard. They've not seen. And then he has promised to give you an entrance into the eternal kingdom. It's promised. So what will you do with your life? There are two choices. You will save your life, and I'm going to say save waste. Waste your life. Save it. And you ultimately lose it. Friends, you cannot be neutral. You have to understand the gospel calls us to take up our cross. The gospel motivates us to action. We must understand we can either try to save our life, protect it, and make it secure and comfortable at all costs. And he says you lose it. Or you lose your life for my sake, Christ speaking, and you ultimately find it and save it. Do you see the irony? But do you, do you understand the paradox there? 
You save it, you lose it, you lose it, you save it. And this is the message. This is what's motivating this man. And we have to understand that. And finally, to the one here today that may be without Christ. I'd love to be able to save you. But all I can tell you is seek him. Look for him. Beg him to reveal himself to you. Seek him. Don't be a fool. Oh, yes, call upon him, but you only call upon him as he's seeking you. Seek him, beg him, look for him, press into him, do whatever you can. You must have Christ. You must have him. And that's the message of what Romans has been all about. It's what motivated this man, Paul. It's what ought to motivate you and me. We've been gripped by God's glory. We see it. We see it where? In Christ. And we are changed because of it. And friends, it doesn't make an easy life. It doesn't guarantee that we will always sleep on a bed of roses. In fact, it guarantees we won't. Don't be surprised by suffering. But at the end of all this, if we walk by faith and we really believe it, there's an entrance into eternal kingdom. If you believe it, you'll live for that kingdom. You'll live for that day. You'll be like Abraham who looked for that city. What city are you looking for? Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning, God, that you speak to us, Lord, through your word. Father, I pray for those who are here, perhaps lost. God, the gospel, the the death, the burial, the resurrection of your son, the message of Christ, this good 